You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. There's lots of questions now being asked about our heritage and also about car parking. We saw the Corkman Pub in Carlton illegally demolished last month and any time car parking is somehow restricted or removed, there's much public outcry. So how can our city change while still preserving what we value most? To talk about both of these quite controversial topics in their own way, we're joined by Dr Elizabeth Taylor from RMIT Centre for Urban Research. She's running two events in the coming weeks, on one on car parking and the other on heritage and uh, also uh, Dr Dave Nichols from the University of Melbourne who joins us uh, very regularly here on Triple R and it's really great to have you both in. Thanks Carlia. Uh, Thanks, can Carly I just say since since Elizabeth gets her full designation can I say I'm from the Faculty of Architecture Building and Planning and you're University a se- of se- senior lecturer. I am a senior lecturer. Thank there you, you go. Yes. And you're a postdoctoral fellow. That's right. There we go. We've, we've done it. We've, <laughs> we've, okay, we've ticked happy. their academia boxes. Now, okay, so you guys, what are your uh, credentials? <laughs> um, community broadcaster. That's oh, yeah. it. Well, that's the most important thing. That's, that's it. Right. And we're yeah. both, we're all here on Triple R. And um, I suppose, you know, these are really great topics, which is why, um, Liz, you're running events on them because there's lots of interest. But if we start with First Heritage and then go to parking a bit later, but the Corkman Pub isn't the first illegal demolition we've seen in Melbourne. But what is it about that? that demolition that grew, drew so much outcry, not just from politicians, but from the public. It looked, it, it looked really brazen, didn't it? It just looked like it was... Because the, the place caught fire, like, earlier in the week. Mm. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm not saying anything about anything, but it looked... The way that it looked, I think, was um, as though that there was a, a real... You know, it was just a nuisance as far as its owners were concerned and that um, they just saw the opportunity to... Um, to finish it off, finish off what the fire had started. Um, and there was also, on top of that, um, because it was, first of all, it was it was demolished, you know, seemingly on the on the sly, looked a bit looked a bit odd. Um, there was also the the safety issue, the um, the asbestos issue with that building. So um, n- the proper protocols weren't uh, brought into play. So it just, um, you know, I'm not saying it was dodgy, but it looked dodgy. Well, it did to a lot of people, and I suppose there were stop work orders and, and the like, and we saw the planning minister and Robert Doyle go down and get photographed yeah. by the press down there on the site vowing to bring all of the kind of powers and penalties that they mm. possibly can on that, and I don't know if any of that's been fully decided yet. It certainly mobilised a lot of interest, and the reason we're holding the event is that people, I think, are a bit shocked. Um, there's a sense about how much money's involved, and maybe we need to reassess uh, how effective our heritage controls are, given that, I mean, we don't know for certain, but it seems as though um, part of the motivation for demolishing it was just simply that they'd make more money and that the maximum fines possible would be a drop in the bucket of how mm. much money you can make from development. And the kind of systems we have in place, which have worked in many ways, and they grew out of, well, David could probably speak to that, um, a long struggle. In the sort of scale of profits to be made now, they're not... Um, up to the top. Not sufficient. Yeah. Is this kind of a, a watershed moment potentially for the way that heritage listings are, uh, buildings are, are protected? Because this has happened in the past without this level of outcry. Will this really change things, do you think? This kind of thing has happened before. I mean, people have been ordered to rebuild buildings that have been demolished in a kind of, uh, you know, in this in this manner. So it's it could be it's a watershed. I think the watershed, and I think um, maybe this is you know we're talking about it, and people have been talking about it. It was it was a place, 
it was a, an action that really um, just garnered a huge amount of attention. So maybe it was it's a watershed in the sense it's a straw that broke the camel's back. Um, what a disgusting uh, metaphor when you think about it. But um, it was uh, <laughs> uh, so it was something that I think you know people have th- have this kind of have had this idea, and the general public has had this idea that this kind of stuff goes on. And this was just the one that really just drew a huge amount of attention. Well, I mean, it's gone on. Over generations, I mean, there's been you know demolition crews that have been renowned for kind of fly-by-night um, demolitions over the years, and not just in Melbourne either. I remember you know uh, in it's happened in Sydney in the Northern yes. Territory. I mean, it happens all over oh, the place. Brisbane, it was Brisbane, famous. Famous. Yeah. yeah, and it's and I think you know for a lot of people, it's a lot of heartbreak when you lose something that was valuable to you and valuable. Um, but that said, when that when this was um, knocked down, the Corkman, it was widely reported that the site value doubled yes. overnight because the building wasn't I'm there anymore. I'm surprised it only doubled. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if that's what we're up against, what does need to change? And that's the what we're discussing at the event. So, there's a few <laughs> so you don't have the plug. I don't have the answer. But you will. <laughs> a lot of uh, expertise out there. Another p- a related point is uh, you mentioned listings, Dylan. The Corkman's wasn't listed. Oh. It had a heritage overlay on it. That's my understanding. And in that way, it was kind of similar to another uh, demolition that happened recently that... Perhaps drew drew out differences between the legislative protection and the community expectations, which was the demolition of um, Gough Whitland's birthplace, which wasn't listed. Am I right? But there was no. a, a push to get it yes. uh, listed, but then it was so it was legally demolished. But there was this disjuncture between what people expect to be protected and how, and what's really possible. Um, yes. So the Corkmans was protected by a, a general overlay but not specifically listed as i understand the, it. So and the whitlam thing is going to be explored at, at uh, this event as well that's correct but in, i mean as, as we speak in in new south wales we're seeing the government the state government up there not really standing by its heritage protection say with the serious building and they're mm. resisting mm. i mean they own that asset and they're resisting the heritage listing that so many people are calling for uh this sort of brutalist mm. um public housing uh building that i think is now vacant you know, so right next to is a beautiful building. it's a beautiful i saw it recently when i was in sydney it's right there next to the harbour bridge but our government and richard Wynne uh wanting to stand up for heritage listing so it's not that we can we can't necessarily guarantee that all governments will do this can we stand up for heritage absolutely absolutely not and it's you know there are so many stakeholders in the in the whole mix it's one of those it's a it's a bizarre when you look at it the 50 year span which is what i always love to do um the the way that gentrification has um, morphed over time, and one of the reasons that people were initially attracted to the inner city and came back, you know, people, uh, middle class people came back to the inner city was a kind of aesthetic ideal about what, what the inner city meant, what it represented, what it looked like, how it felt, and so on, the, the kind of the vibe, the environment. Uh, and big, those people came back in the 60s and 70s and made the inner city, um, you know, vibrant. And... Um, and then it's it's taken on this kind of uh, financial life of its own, this um, this value, this um, material value that means that people want to live in the inner city, um, partly because it's you know it, it represents uh, it's it's a it has wealth, it has uh, you know a financial value at, uh, attached to it. Well, the, ideally, you have a value of having your neighbours have heritage protection and you not. So that's right. Sort of so you can look at ways. their um, you can look at their their look down heritage. On their lovely heritage. <laughs> yeah, look facade. at the roof, a heritage roof. Mm. Well, you can build whatever you like. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. We're not cynical. 
we're not cynical about this. Um, but uh, this event is a public event and taking place uh, this Thursday, the 17th of November from 5.30 till 7pm at RMIT. And you can find out more information online about that if you want to go and hear uh, a whole range of different heritage experts speaking about heritage protections in Melbourne. And I suppose where to now when we can see that such brazen uh, demolitions can take place against government orders. So that's um, one issue we want to talk about this morning. But another one that is coming up again and again uh, and this is something you're researching, Liz, is car parking. And as uh, we have more people living in Melbourne and more cars, uh, the the parking spaces that we allocate, particularly on roadways, are seen as being you know incredibly valuable and rare. Is parking the best use of them? And this is something that um, you've been looking at, but it's a very controversial area to um, to try and make changes to with with laws. Very much so. So um, first of all, good summary. It's um, as the value of spaces i mean there's more competition for space there's more cars um that space allocated to parking becomes reassessed um and one thing i say about parking is often that people underestimate how big it is just one space is at least 13 square meters and can sometimes be double that so when you're talking about a part in the context of apartments that are often the space of two car parking spaces then you start to notice how much um potentially that could be worth but then you have with parking the fact that for a long time people are used to not paying for it at all so if you're then kind of competing for something that's not priced um it it really gets people's emotions going and that's how i got interested in it i first noticed how much of the uh, planning appeals at, at vcat where parking was really the main issue specifically the fear that someone will take your parking space and how are we going to move forward as a city? Um, Elizabeth, wasn't like parking was ostensibly the main issue in a lot of instances and it's actually masking something else often, you know, yeah, well, I'm still prejudices? Yeah, ex- exploring that. We have two. I mean, a, a key example of the sort of masking fact is that parking is usually a, a, the key issue brought up around mosque applications and other things like that. In those cases, it seems to be perhaps it is something else is going on. At, at the same time, people feel very strongly about parking, um, feel strongly about having it and not paying for it and yep. about the space in front of their own home. It's hard to untangle those and I'm, st- I'm still kind of working on those. Um, Is it partly at all, do you think, maybe uh, a generational thing at all? People who have lived for a long time in maybe somewhere on the, the sort of inner fringe of the city, some of the inner suburbs, and haven't really had, um, until relatively recently, a lot of kind of multi-level developments happening there and have been able to park outside their house for time immemorial, but now are finding it's a little bit more tricky. Do you think it's something that maybe sort of older generations um, assume that they have that spot more than younger people who see it more as being up for grabs and a public asset? I can't speak directly to age, but it's certainly true that having a sense of uh, a right to park on your own street that has been established and it's asserted, and this is a key issue in the VCAT appeals, it's my street and other people come in and are taking my space away, and that if you've had something for a long time and then that's under threat, then obviously um, that's very painful. Um, and there's other pressures, not just from apartment developments, it's from um, things like public transport, the disparities in public transport. So a lot of parking pressures come from people driving in to park to then catch the tram. And there's just the fact that people have more cars. So mm-hmm. some of these streets, even without apartment developments, people now have adult children at home and they've got four or five cars. Um, another thing I'm finding from some survey results I did is that um, people that have garage space or driveway space don't actually use it because 
perhaps with the price of housing getting so much higher, it's worth a lot more for them to use the garage as a you know ping pong room or a lounge room, and then they are parking on the street. So just having off street space doesn't mean that people use uh, will use it. So mm. this uh, what I'm finding, and this is sort of initial, is that the the more pressure on house prices, the more pressure there is on that ostensibly free on-street parking because it's all spilling out. Is it not also... There's, there's, I think, a kind of an overlay on top of that, which is that people get really angry about being asked to pay for parking in the same way they get angry about being getting speeding fines. Mm-hmm. It's a revenue raiser. You know, yes. it's as though they're being, like... Target. It's not about safety or convenience or, or you know, or, or making the city more livable. It's about someone someone out there is making money off them Yes, and if you look at the history of parking, you can kind of tease that out a bit. From the get-go, the introduction of uh, parking meters have always been violent encounters. The introduction of meter maids, um, who are always seen as a kind of lesser form of law enforcement um, and kind of spurious um, violation of your rights as a driver. There's the fact that, I mean, there's few places around the world, Japan's an exception, but Melbourne is one of many places where when cars took off, um, you know, car ownership increased rapidly. There were no parking restrictions, and people just put their cars anywhere. And the, as the sort of controls became necessary, or depending on your view, uh, desirable to government, um, it's always been seen as something being taken away from mm-hmm. our natural right to park on the street. We're not weren't meter maids um, women on the Gold Coast who put money in your meter? Weren't they like a, a sign of the? the great life that existed on the Gold Coast? My understanding mm. is that they were employed by the same people that ran the parking meters right. so that you wouldn't get as angry about having to pay for parking. Oh, so they were actually enforced, they were giving this you tickets. The first yeah. time, this okay. is the first time I've ever heard of this. It's some um, 24 minutes to 10 here on 3 Triple R. We're talking with uh, Dr Elizabeth Taylor from RMIT and Dr Dave Nichols from Melbourne University about an event coming up on car parking, but just car parking in general and uh, what we do in a growing city when car parking spaces kind of in many respects becoming more valuable for something else rather than for cars and the kind of conflict that that brings and uh, can we just clear up Liz the car spot out the front of my house does not belong to me does it it does not it belongs to the council you can't build on it Kalia I know but but a lot (laughs) of people do have that ownership and I know there is conflict between neighbours if the neighbour or their family member parks in front of their house it really does bother them because it's kind of implied it's it's theirs but it's not is it no no it is very much owned by the council but um there is a very very strong feeling that um it may not be a formal property right but people feel like it is their right to park in front of their own home um and that parking in front of someone else's house is if not illegal certainly contravenes some kind of social code and, and people pe- leave notes and stuff to each other on their windscreen saying this is my car park you need to, to move yep. the car park and things like this i mean this has been going on for a really long time but we have permits in some streets so permit zones so i know we get this a lot in, in st kilda and fitzroy and, and and richmond and the like and so this is one step to say well residents have more rights here than visitors yeah and what you find is when these are introduced so they it tends to follow a sort of chronology. You start off with absolutely no control and then at some point people either start asking for it or it becomes necessary. Um, so if you look at places like Carlton or Fitzroy or parts of Brunswick, and key thing there is also that these places were built before off-street parking requirements, so a lot of these houses don't have um, their own parking. They might, but um, requirement for parking only came in in the 1950s. Um, the council starts distinguishing between residents and um, non-residents by issuing these parking permits. Um, 
initially people tend to fight them because it signifies that they're they're losing that right um, an un, unrestricted right to park in front of their own house. It says that it's a kind of reminder that the council has some say. But eventually, when you get to a position where it's really high-value real estate and um, a parking permit generally costs about $30 a year, then it becomes something people really value and you have a sort of black market, for lack of a better word. And you can kind of um, contrast how much does a parking permit cost. In I keep bringing up Fitzroy because that's the most desirable place, but we have them in Brunswick as well and sort of gradually spreading outwards. Generally free, maybe 30 at most $100 a year. And if you th- contrast that to how much it would cost you to buy a parking space or to, the space of your garage, then it's a real bargain. So, <laughs> do you see that? Value them. That yeah. sort of permit system, I mean, as well as um, potentially safeguarding a, a parking spot near or, or out the front of the home that you might live in, is also part of a broader mix of, I guess, moves and policies that can discourage people from, from using their cars and relying on them so much? Yes, it's part of. I don't think people uh, that we've really, and hence the event, really assessed how important parking is for things like transport choice and housing choices and and distributional effects. And that's why there's a lot of research that hasn't happened and we're trying to identify those. But yes, parking is critical to people's decisions on car ownership and whether they use cars. On the whole, most policies in Melbourne, like a lot of Australian cities, they might not say it explicitly, but if uh, essentially most of our policies are about encouraging or sort of almost requiring car ownership. So getting to that point where you're discouraging them is quite a long way it's away. Hard, it's mm. hard, isn't it? And I know in East Melbourne, um, I tried to park there in recent months and it's almost impossible to park there. And I think there's some places where cars are so discouraged. But do people straight away think you're going after their car park, Liz, when you're studying car parking, that there is going to be a shift and you're, you're, Pretty much, you're yeah. responsible? <laughs> that, uh, that I'm, I'm the one taking them away. And there is a um, an element of just maths to it. There's only so much space and there's only you know the more cars you have and the less space you have the more competition there will be but it's such a hot issue um people do get um uh fearful i suppose fear of and they do feel um perhaps in a justified way that they've already spent so much money on their car and now they have to pay for parking as well they can't find any parking and it's probably fair to say that we don't have a very integrated system of parking policies between the on-street and the off-street. I mean, East, East Melbourne, in your example, um, the residents there do have parking permits that, again, very very low-priced parking permits, and they can rent out their spaces. Um, so that there is that kind of bubbling up of maybe uh, market versions, but there's sort of this weird mix of on-street restrictions and off-street requirements and so on, and um, we're a long way from having a, a, a sense that if, if you want to drive a car, you can, but it all, you know, it's up to you. It's a very loaded world. Uh, I, I should just say, tell the listeners that Elizabeth has co-authored a, a paper that came out last week, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, it's called The Elephant in the Scheme. That's the one. It's And it's an overview of parking policy as it did or did not appear in uh, in various plans for Melbourne but from 1929 up till the present day. Can people access that? They can, yeah. Um, for 50 days, it's free. Yeah. So this is well, we'll try and tweet out or put on Facebook a, a link yeah, to that paper. Yeah. But, I mean, it, I mean, what I find really fascinating about parking, Liz, and I, we're kind of running out of time, but is the kind of weird alliances that are springing up. So we know that traders, say, on Hoddle Street and Punt Road are worried about the car parking there being taken away, yeah. but the RACV is 
you know, kind of behind removing car parking, yep. particularly on arterial roads. We've heard them coming out in support of that because the roads are high value for traffic to be moving and not stationary. So mm-hmm. are we going to see, you think, going forward, some strange alliances between perhaps council and RFTV and, yeah, and some of these other I bodies? Once, once you start thinking about it in terms of perhaps the future and new technology as well, you do see these strange, uh, surprising alliances. And, for example, RACV, uh, NRMA, the New South Wales equivalent, They've started up one of these parking rental schemes where you can, um, you know, if you have a parking space you're not using, you can rent it out to someone who needs it. And NRA is sponsoring one of those, which is perhaps surprising because it does imply paying for parking, which they're often against. But when you're at this situation where what we have now isn't really working, then looking to the future, then maybe we will see surprising um, combinations of, of stakeholders. Can't we just parking. wait for the self-driving car that will take itself home when it drops you off? That's what I was sort of getting at without actually saying. That's part of the event. We're looking at, we're not vouching for autonomous mm. vehicles, but that's certainly an issue to think about. If they do become a reality, then parking takes a whole different form and, and how much you need of it and where it is. And maybe we don't mm. have to worry about it anymore. We're still requiring it at this stage. (laughs) Thank you so much for both coming in. Um, We'll catch you again in a month's time. Dave, um, Dr Dave Nichols at Melbourne Union, Dr Elizabeth Taylor at RMIT and two events we're speaking about. That one just then called Parking Futures is on Wednesday the 23rd of November and we'll try and remember to remind you. Um, It's a daytime event, uh, 9am to 1.30pm and the previous event on Heritage and Where To Now uh, is coming up this week, Thursday the 17th of November, 5.30 till 7pm with some great experts at both and uh, they're both at RMIT and you should head to their website to find out more. I think it's fair to say that there's been little discussion around local council elections in local papers or even in the major dailies. Um, my local paper re- reported on who the councils were in about a hundred words on page five. And I've actually been turning in large part to Stephen Main's Twitter feed and his column in Crikey to find out what actually happened around the state. There were 79 councils uh, went to elections in October. Uh, Stephen is a former Melbourne City Councillor and it's really great to have you back on Triple R, and uh, thanks for keeping us informed on what's been going on in in local government land. That's all right. Look, it's a it's a fascinating area, and as a sort of embedded journalist inside councils for the last eight years, I'm <laughs> I'm enjoying my freedom, and I can go back and talk openly about uh, councils and elections now. So, uh, and with the mainstream media just dismissing an action, I think it's important to sort of fill that void. Yeah, and so why is it? Do you think that uh, local councils and local government lacks coverage by journalists? Well, I think it's 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 resourcing. Um, the local papers tend to be weekly, and they can't seem to get out of their sort of standard print cycle. So the leader newspapers, which are the, the News Corp owned ones, they just sort of come out on a Monday or a Tuesday, and they they print on a Friday. And so, you know, often it can be sort of eight days later where you actually get a news report in print on what's happening. And they don't seem to have their Twitter feeds up and running where they service them. They don't seem to be able to do quick online reports. Um, and uh, and then no one tries to cover all councils. So, you know, your local paper will have your young cadet journalist who will just cover that council, but no one is then comparing, you know, across the state and saying, well, there's 29 Greens have been elected and there's, you know, uh, 30 female mayors or there's you know, 70 Labor councillors. So I've tried to do all of that. It's been a massive job because uh, you've got, you know, 636 
newly elected councillors across uh, 78 contested councils. And, and often people don't know much about the candidates either. Like I was, um, I voted outside of my ward. I didn't realise I was. And I went down and I was handed a ballot paper, know how to vote that matched it and 20 names that had no, unless I knew them already and I knew some of them, mm. I wouldn't have known who I was voting for. So I think are we kind of presented with a bit of... Um, voter lack of knowledge as well about who we're actually voting for? Yeah, that, that is a problem. And, and Victoria is different from other states where the political parties take less of a role in Victoria than particularly in, in say, Queensland and New South Wales. So only the Greens endorses all of their candidates. So the 29 Greens who got elected, you could you could see who they were. Their email addresses were Greens email addresses. They were branded. Um, but the Labor Party only really endorsed councillors in a few uh, places like, um, I think it was Maribyrnong and some of the, some of their strongholds like to Dandenong um, and Whittlesea, those sort of places. But th- but it was only a handful, and even the Labor pe- people are not identified as Labor people. So there are about seventy Labor councillors who've been elected members of the Labor Party, but very few of them are actually branded. So we've got half a dozen Labor mayors already who've been uh, sworn in by their their colleagues. And the Liberals equally have about 60 councillors across the state. But again, you know, no one's actually drawing up lists and pointing out who they are. So the big parties try to say... We don't want to get into the into the weeds with local government, but you know. More, and Dan Andrews did say that he's yeah. like, "Well, I'll leave that to local government." But I, I, th- I actually think that's disappointing because the political parties are very good at sifting and sorting talent, and they should be able to weed out the nutters and say, and and the, and local councils are the best place to learn politics. You know, it's it's the best training yard for future MPs. Yet in Victoria, Liberal and Labor do not treat it as such. They just say, let let them do their own thing there. The Greens are using it as a training ground and they're making huge strides. And I think that the other parties need to revisit this and actually get into the game. Don't then make it factionalised and make them have party meetings, and but just influence who gets there and brand them as Labor or Liberal. And then once they get there, let them just be independent. So don't let the party system infiltrate the actual workings of councils, but the party should be trying to influence getting some good quality people uh, inside councils because it really matters. And and the quality of councillors is still not that high, which is partly because the pay is so bad and you get attacked by everyone. uh, (laughs) So there's a few issues in the system, but I think the parties need to be more involved. And you mentioned that the Greens have made big strides. Have we seen that kind of across the board in Victoria or confined to particular municipalities and, oh, and LGAs? No, it's very, very localised in the inner city. So, I mean, the Greens went backwards. They started off with two in Stonington and they have none. You know, they have none in Mooney Valley. So some inner city places, you know, they haven't had a breakthrough. But it, the big breakthroughs they made were in Port Phillip, where they went from none to three, uh, Darabin, where they went from one to four, uh, and then in Moreland, they've got to four. And in Yarra, they've never had four before, and they've got to four in Yarra. So we've already seen Yarra appoint a Green Mayor and Amanda Stone. Um, Indigo in the bush, have intru- uh, uh, Green Mayor's got up there, Jenny O'Connor. And this week, we'll, we might see Green Mayors in Moreland and Darabin unveiled when they reveal the outcome of their secret negotiations as to who will be the Mayor. And that's also a great fun story. You elect the councillors but we only have directly elected mayors in Melbourne with Robert Doyle. Everyone else, it's a decision for the councillors. And they sometimes rotate it. Well, some councils do, you know, some maybe like a, a Banyul or a Maribyrnong, they sort of negotiate four-year deals at the start. 
They say, right, oh, they, they don't, don't announce it, but they, they have an agreement. So a gang of a group of councillors get together and carve it up for four years. So I actually think it's quite unhealthy the way the mayoral selection system works. It really should be merit and it should be based on, you know, your performance and you shouldn't be making an agreement now as to who's going to be the mayor in, in 2019. But that does tend to happen because uh, it is the big prize that the councillors can hand out is who gets the $90,000 salary in the mayoral car and the title for a 12-month period. And, and we've got about... 20 to go. We've had so far about 60, uh, almost 60 mayors decided. And I'm quite excited that we've so far got 20, uh, 24 female mayors. And I was going to ask about the, the women's representation because the, the great thing about you creating these lists, Stephen, is that you can see who's actually been elected and start to do some number crunching on it. And at, at what is the female representation like at the local government level after the elections? Well, we've just become best in Australia. So we've gone from 34% female to 38% female. 38 of the 38 percent of the 636 elected councillors and uh so three months ago we had 24 female mayors across the 79 councils um we've already got to 24 now with still about 20 to be decided the record is 30 in 2012 and in 2014 we had 30 and i think there's a very good chance we can get to a record of 31 and for me i'm sort of saying the stretch target here is 32 which would be 40 percent so if we can get to 40 percent female mayors that'd be sort of fantastic whereas you know you look at the us they've only got uh, you know six of the 50 governors of states are female uh, so you know, it's not you know females in politics. There's not enough of that. We need more. And local government in Victoria is blazing the trail and doing really well in uh, in lifting the uh, percentage numbers. I want to ask you about Geelong as well, because of course the Geelong Council was sacked by the state government in recent memory. And um, I understand you went down there over the past week or so to talk to the citizens' jury that's been assembled to kind of recommend how to proceed with the new local council? Yes, so they've got a hundred uh, randomly selected citizens uh, deciding what model they should have for their elections in October next year. You know, do they have a directly elected mayor? Do they have wards or do they go undivided? So City of Melbourne for instance, where I've served, is, is undivided, there's no wards and we have a directly elected mayor. And the Melbourne model is being pushed on Geelong and people are saying you should do that and so I was asked, you know, do I support that? And I have to say, I think the, the thing, the reason that Geelong went bad was because they had single member wards and they had these things called ward grants where each individual councillor in their ward could hand out and decide where $600,000 a year was spent. I mean, they were doing $5 million in ward grants across all the councillors and they were just building fiefdoms. They were pumping money into the footy club and the cricket club and so the council was run by footy and cricket club presidents, basically, because of this sort of dodgy ward grant system. Then they suddenly put a directly elected mayor over the top of that and that mayor had no support from the councillors. So two of them got chewed up and spat out, basically. Um, Keith Fagg and, and Darren Lyons. Um, and so the question now is, what do you do? So I said to them, whatever you do, do not have single-member wards because they create these sort of rotten boroughs and people stay forever and you can't remove them. So have multi-member wards, maybe a three-by-three three or even a four-by-three. And then do you want to have a directly elected mayor? Previously I've said, yes, I like that. And Victoria has less directly elected mayors than any other state. Every other state is further down the road of letting the community choose their leaders. But having just been in the US and having seen Donald Trump and having seen Darren Lyons, and I think he was a terrible mayor, and he will probably run again, I said to them at the jury, I said, maybe 
go back to the councillors choosing the mayor just mm. in the short term and then let the state government, which is reviewing the entire local government act, decide if it wants to d- move in the whole of Victoria on directly elected, elected mayors. But I think Darren Lyons getting back is too big a risk in Geelong and therefore they should go away from the Melbourne model and just be like every other council where the councillors decide who is the mayor. That's interesting, isn't it, where, where democracy fails? <laughs> yeah, well... Um, uh, I mean, Donald Trump could not get up in Australia. You know, when Tony Abbott was going off the rails or Kevin Rudd was going off the rails, he could be removed. You know, Donald Trump has a four-year term. Uh, he cannot be removed. And, um, yes, the people chose him, but, um, you know, it's pretty scary. So those governance models, those leadership selection questions are very interesting. And, um, and I, I mean, I don't like the annual selection of mayor because you sit there on council and you spend half your time plotting and planning as to how to get the numbers. So things like, you know, two-year terms. So you, you, you pick your mayor and then you don't have to change it for two years. That would be a sensible reform rather than every year. The mayor's just getting used to the job and they're and people out. Have, people have just learnt their names. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so in the city of Melbourne, we, 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 we meet all our neighbouring councils and the Robert sort of goes to meet them and, and it's just a revolving door of who's, yeah. the, who's the mayor this year. There's no other leadership position where it's so unstable, where there's so many rotations around leadership. Public company chairs stay for an average of five or six years. Footy club presidents, you know, kindergarten presidents, average of, you know, two, three, four years. So this one-year mandated period for mayors is, is, is not a good strange, system. It's quite strange, isn't it? Stephen Means with us, a former Melbourne City Councillor, well-known to triple R audiences, and we're talking about local... What happened, really, at the council elections and uh, the wash-up. Uh, perhaps we should talk about Mel- Melbourne City Council because that is the one council that we do get a lot of reporting on, Stephen, and you've been part of that until until this election. And uh, what happened there is um, it, it looks like Brooke Wanden's been elected. Well, she was a, a announced as elected. Brooke Wanden is in, in a business lady related, a direct descendant of William Barrack, the great Warrandry leader, and I preferenced her and she got elected on my preferences. But unfortunately, uh, there has been an issue with her enrolment uh, and there was a, a, the municipal inspector announced that they were having a look at, at uh, questions or complaints about her enrolment and she's now withdrawn. So she has resigned. Um, and so they've now got to work out whether there's going to be a, a recount or a count back and another councillor will be elected in her place, which is quite uh, sad. But that's not settled yet? No, that'll be, that won't be settled for uh, uh, probably another two or three weeks where they'll do a count back and then they've got to decide whether they, they, they offer it to the councillor who wins the count back. There's a bit of an issue about whether Brooks number two on her ticket, Nick Francis, can uh, be elected because if there's an issue with... Brooks enrolment is there an issue with the ticket um, and then and then the preferences would flow after that so it's a bit uncertain but Robert Dawe got back with a with an increased vote uh, and the Greens got back uh, with an increased vote in both the mayoral and the council elections they are the two biggest performers and, and two best biggest groups on the council from where I've sat they've both done a good job yeah Robert's a good Lord Mayor the Greens are the best councillors. They work very hard, very effectively. And the rest of us got squeezed by that. Uh, increased support for the Greens and for the, the toil ticket and by the emergence of Phil Cleary, who became the, the maverick protest vote. And he captured sort of 8% in the council and he squeezed all of us as well. I mean, I got elected on that maverick protest vote, but I've been an insider now. And Phil Cleary came along as the shake up, it's all bad, I'll fix it. Well, you know, can, can we talk a little bit about that where people moving, like former reps for, you know, federal seat in, in the case of Phil, but also um, some people that have served at the state level moving in 
into local government. Do you see that as a trend? And, and if so, is it something that uh, is, is beneficial to, to local governments to have people with that kind of larger political experience? Well, I think, I think having professionals, people who understand politics... You know, Robert Doyle has been a great Lord Mayor because he's brought gravitas and status and connections to the office. So there's, you know, there's no more clown hall. You know, he's well connected with you know, Bloomberg and Boris Johnson and Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull and Daniel Andrews. He, he knows them all. So I think that's been great for Melbourne, having a former state Liberal leader come and, come and serve. Mike Simons, the former federal member for Deakin, Labor... He is now on the city of Maroondah, so he got voted out and he's come back and he's now on the on Maroondah Council. And out at Banyul, you've got two war horses of, of state politics. You've got Craig Langdon, who was spat out by the Labor Party, long-term member for Ivanhoe. He's now sort of the king of Banyul, up against Wayne Phillips, who was a long-term Liberal member. Um, so you are seeing a bit of this. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing uh, to get professional politicians in there, but in the case of Banyul, uh, some of them are a bit sort of tired old war horses who've been around forever and stayed too long. I mean, Phillips is now pre and post parliament. He's no, up gee, over, I remember over him from years. my childhood, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, and the other thing before we let you go uh, that I wanted to ask about is the state government, as you said, is doing a review of the Local Government Act over the next couple of years and also uh, wondering, I'd love you to talk about what's going to happen there, but also what impact has rate capping had on councils, do you think? Um, that's something that came in with the Andrews government and uh, I understand has really affected some councils, but is this going to be an ongoing issue of the funding of local government? Yeah, well, basically, rate capping so far has probably cut the annual rates revenue uh, by between 50 and 100 million. So, in other words, the rates were rising at an average of 6% a year for 10 years, and the rate rises last year was sort of 2, 2.5. And, and even bef the year before that, with rate capping coming in, they fell back to sort of in the 3 to 4 range. So, I think they were unsustainable increases in rates. So you can't keep going at 6% a year. Victoria has got the strongest balance sheet, so we've only got about a billion dollars of debt across all of our 79 councils, and every other state has got much more. We've got assets of you know, 100 billion. Mm -hmm. So we're very lightly geared or, or low debt. So I think that it will impact a little bit on capital works. You're seeing less generous wage deals, and we've had a lot of generous wage deals with the workers, and that's starting to come off as well. Um, but I think you'll also see the system now of, of people asking for exemptions. So people weren't prepared to ask for an exemption from rate capping before the election, so only about half a dozen got it last year. But I think a lot more will do it. And I, if I was back on City of Melbourne, I, I would have been asking for a rate exemption this year. And it is, that again, journalism, where is it? I haven't mm. seen a single councillor or mayor asked, what do you think about rate capping? Do you think your council should ask for an exemption? over the next four years so that you're not locked into CPI rate rises. That so is, that no is one a put the hard question. word on them. <laughs> and no, no one raised that issue once. Well, and now that you've ended your, um, your eight-year sentence in, in local councils, what's, what does the future hold? Are you going to kind of continue to, to take up that mantle of, of reporting and investigating Look, I, I think Look, I think there's a massive gap in, in someone doing that and helping governance. So I, at City of Melbourne, we did this massive transparency reform program and we, you know, I, I argue we're now the most open and transparent council in Australia. So I think there is a place to go around Australia and to argue to councils, you know, open up, reveal stuff, you know, why aren't you having public questions? Why isn't your council meetings on the website? Why haven't you released your lease register? How much are you paying your CEO? How long's the contract? So I love that space. So I'll probably stay in that sort of a mixture of journalism and, and activism uh, and combine that with, um, with sort of shareholder advocacy mm -hmm. as well. So just a general sort of journalistic governance advocacy space. And after eight years in, as an insider, I think I've got some good knowledge and I'm now the uh, straitjacket is off. 
and I can <laughs> say what I think. So well, I'll give you one final question for the City of Melbourne councillors is, in the first budget of the last term, we jacked up the parking fees. And I know you've been talking about parking. We have. We yeah. just spent 20 minutes talking yeah. about parking. So we jacked up the parking fees by as much as 37%. So we put them up from, you know, the, the hourly rate from 450 to 550 And the sequence over the years has been that you only do it once every four years because it does cost a lot of money to change the metres. So the big question for the first budget of the City of Melbourne is, are you going to jack up the parking fees again in that great tradition of the first year straight up? after the election, you put the fees up. Now, you never tell anyone that this is what's going to happen. And the budget forecasts have assumed an increase, um, but no one actually, no journalist said, do you promise not to jack up the parking fees? So that, that will be a bit, very interesting question is, will they go for an exemption from rate capping and will they jack up the parking fees to bring an extra four or five million in by doing that once every four years? Well, increase? we'll await the response. Watch this space. And uh, we'll definitely be staying in touch with you, I think, Steamwood Maine, and uh, especially uh, as you're going to be looking at this space, it's an area that we're absolutely passionate about on this show on Triple R, and uh, especially as we see the, the Local Government Act reviewed over the next couple of years, it'd be great to tap, tap into your knowledge and interest be delighted to come and have a chat with you you have been listening to a podcast from australia's best known community radio station three triple r 102.7 in melbourne for more podcasts information about upcoming events and our live stream please visit our website at rrr.org.au